0: John 2, and we will be be in verses 1 through 12. John 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And stayed there for a few days. Lord, as we get into the text of your word here, we pray that we would, having sung your praises and given you glory and called ourselves here to worship, that we would be prepared to hear from you, both in our mind and in our heart, Lord, that our emotions as well as our intellect would be stirred up right now as we prepare to hear from your word. I pray that what we hear from your text here today would be something that resonates within our souls and that it gives us great joy and pride to be one of your children, Lord. Because if that's the place where we're going to self-identify as a place of pride, it should be that we are your children, that you have called us according to your purpose. And Lord, this whole text here is about celebration and joy. And so we ask that as we hear about this, Lord, that we would be full of joy and full of the hope that is found in you, Jesus. Really, truly for your glory, and your great namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we come to the very first place here in the book of John where (laughs) it tells us something um, that is now new and unique, and that's specifically that this is the first of his signs. Now, one of the things that I want to point out before we get into the rest of the text here is that we saw that John the Baptist, he performed no signs and performed no miracles. He performed many baptisms to the point where people even believed and trusted in his baptism and needed to be told later on that there was something greater than John. Of course, that's in Acts chapter 19 for you to look up later on. But here is the first of his signs. Now, it takes place after both his baptism and his temptation, and then we could add to that as well the first public declaration by John, the one to make straight the way of the Lord, um, upon his demonstration, his declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus performed nothing before then. First of all, that means there's no childhood miracles, right? You have these spurious gospels that are out there that will have things like Jesus saw a little bird that fell out of the tree and you know his tender sweet little boy heart went over there and poop and gave life back to this little bird or something along those lines and we would say no to that we would completely disagree with that number 1 because it says here that this is the first of his signs but number 2 the point of the signs the very point of them is to demonstrate the work that he is doing as Messiah. That Messiah work didn't begin until his baptism, his first, um, <coughs> his being tempted in the wilderness, and John declaring who he was there as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here has to be the beginning of the signs. It has to be the beginning of His work, and it's interesting that it begins with wine. Now, I have read several different, many commentaries on this, and there is much division about this particular issue. And it typically stems from the fact that for a certain period of time in very recent church history, there were some groups of people who were absolutely teetotaling. They were abs- abolitionists in the sense that that alcohol consumption is in and of itself a sin. And so you have some people saying, well, you know, this this is a rare event. It's just on a wedding and it was probably really diluted wine. That's why there was water in the pots in the first place. All the way to the one guy who said that there's no way that Jesus turned all of those pots into wine. What actually happened is the one glass that was drawn and given to the bridegroom, or pardon me, the, the host of the feast, that's the only thing that turned into wine, and it was a judgment because they were drinking wine. And of course, those are absolutely laughable and absurd interpretations of this text. Why? Why is that? How so? Well... Number one, wine in biblical days, and it sometimes was kind of diluted and sometimes it wasn't. We can't make a case that they walked around with grape paste that they would just put a little bit of water in and mix it up and they called that wine because there's many prohibitions in scripture against being drunk with wine. So therefore, wine was indeed something that would get you drunk, but it was also a staple. And it was a staple in many more ways than we have here in America. We would say, you know, a staple for us to drink might be things like milk and water, right? Those things are typically what anybody in America is going to have in their refrigerator, Milk and water. Well, wine would have been something as a staple like that. You can find this in many scriptural passages Genesis chapter 14 and Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 18. There's this, it just, you pass right by it if you don't notice it. But it was about the provision of wine to the people who were working. And it was just understood. Yeah, as you're working, you're going to be provided for, and wine is right there included in the list of things that are going to be provided. So it's in passing, and because it's in passing like that, it's not intended for you to take notice and go, whoa, they had wine just given to them like that? No, it was understood that it was the staple of the day. But even more than that is it was a symbol in lots of places in the Old Testament for joy. Joy. And celebration. There are several places we can look to. Psalm 104, let's look at a couple of these passages here. Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause God, you, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock The plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. You see that? It's just in the context of provision that he just goes through this list, grass, livestock, plants, food, wine. Bread, oil, you see that there? It's just included. But what it talks about in terms of it being a staple, but it also says that wine gladdens the heart of men. And this is clearly in a positive context. The psalmist is praising God for his provision of wine, something that gladdens the heart of man. There are a couple other passages that we could look at, but let me just give you a few. Judges chapter 9, verse 13, if you're taking notes. and then Ecclesiastes chapter 10 says a couple of things in a similar vein. See, this was given not only as a staple, something that was on hand that you would drink. Water wasn't always the best thing to drink. You wouldn't carry around milk with you. (laughs) That'd go bad far too quick. So wine was the staple of the day, and it was also a symbol of joy. Interesting, there's a messianic expectation in scripture that wine would flow freely in times of the Messiah. Now, this is something that over the recent years in my study of scripture, I've begun realizing more and more, and it's something that for many years I would would have thought there's no way that that's literal. That has to be some kind of metaphor. It has to be, <clears throat> you know, some kind of other way of thinking. But not so much. In fact, let's go all the way back. This is a point where I want to look at several passages of Scripture. But all the way back to Genesis. Right? You know Genesis chapter 47 there. and four, Pardon me, 49 is a text where Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And specifically, we want to look at the prophecy that's given in this blessing to Judah. It begins in verse 8 of chapter 49. And he says Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding a foal to the vine, and donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So here you have Judah and we know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Messiah who has come from this tribe of Judah. And so when we read, about this prophecy of Judah, we should take note, especially when we're pointed to the fact that the scepter won't depart from Judah, that this is messianic. And here in this messianic bit, we find the fact that the vine, and specifically wine, is something that is all over him. It's something that points to the fact of his, how do we want to say it, his exuberance in his ability to provide. It's his exuberance in his celebration for him being the king. He is robed, as it were, in wine. That's the whole point of this here. His clothes are completely covered. It's as if he was covered in blood coming back from battle, but instead of blood It's wine, which is obviously something that has been throughout scripture uh, an item of celebration as we've seen. But look with me at several other texts. Isaiah 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse six. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. And then you skip down to verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And then on we can go from there. But clearly this text is messianic. And one of the messianic blessings that's going to be ushered in with this great feast. (coughs) Is a feast full of celebration and wine. And Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Declare it to the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him back. He will gather him as a shepherd keeps his flock For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, And the oil over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be watered like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men who are old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness declares the Lord Hosea after the book of Daniel Hosea chapter 14 Hosea chapter 14 that last chapter there in the book of Hosea beginning in verse 4 again this is speaking of the return of the people of God back to God he says, I will heal their apostasy, verse 4. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall be like a blossom, like the lily. He shall take root like trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like that of Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From he, From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are upright, pardon me, are right, and the upright walk in them. But the transgressors stumble in them. Again, what you see over and over here is you see wine being used as something that is ushered in through the Messiah as a means of both celebration and a symbol of the joyful reception of God's providence in salvation, specifically in these passages we've just been looking at. There's a few more, Joel chapter 3, the next book over. Joel chapter 3, beginning in, oh, verse, let's start in 17. 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and the strangers shall never again pass through it. And that day mountains shall drip with sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. All the stream beds of Judah will flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord." With water from the valley of Shittim, and Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, for I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And then finally, in the next book over, Amos. The last chapter, chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. And in that day I will raise up a booth of David that has fallen down and repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes and him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore my fortunes, pardon me, the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink of their wine. They will make of gardens and eat the fruit thereof. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, you might say to yourself, self... Why do we spend so much time on these Old Testament passages when we're talking here about a wedding that Jesus went to? Well, I want you to see this is the important point. I think this is the point of the passage. I think this is the point of the miracle. I think this is the point of the sign. Jesus' first sign is he is fulfilling the messianic expectation that the nation of Israel had and he's doing it with the symbol of joy and celebration rather than doing it with a symbol of wrath and judgment. There's a reason why the withering of the fig tree happens at the end of Jesus' ministry because that is a symbol of the national population of Israel Their rejection of the Messiah, and they're going to be inevitably removed from the land. That is a prophetic curse on the nation of Israel. But Jesus doesn't begin his ministry with that. He begins his ministry with joy, he begins his ministry with celebration. He begins his ministry as it were saying, I am the great provider and I'm the one who should bring the very thing to your soul that nothing else has brought. Judaism was depleted at this point. The condemnation comes clear in Matthew chapter 22 when he goes through and says, you tithe of your mint and your cumin. You stand up and you proclaim these wonderful things. You toot your little horns. You drop the money in the clinker. And you know, you are nothing but whitewashed tombs. If there's a symbol of Judaism in this passage, it's the empty six stone water jugs. And I would argue... By extension, there are no other religious systems out there that are anything but depleted, anything but unsatisfying, anything but frustrating when you get down to it because nothing can ever be accomplished in terms of salvation in these other systems, Jesus comes in, Jesus' establishment of his messianic reign is, I am the great provider of everything that could possibly ever bring you joy and celebration and those messianic expectations that you had in me are completely and totally fulfilled in me in absolute abundance. And I'm going to show you that's the point of what he's getting at here. So let's get back into the text in John chapter 2. They go to a wedding and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse 3, when the wine ran out. Now, one thing I read and I don't know, I'm assuming you have heard this passage taught before it's not in some small corner of the New Testament, so I'm expecting that you've heard it. But I read one of the commentators, as I was reading through this passage, say, the reason the wine ran out is because Jesus brought his disciples and they weren't expecting the extra crowd. That's ridiculous. The reason the wine ran out is because God in his providence ordained that the wine would run out through their celebration, right? Right? The master of ceremony says, "Hey, we all drank the good wine and basically have been merry. The custom of the day was to give the good wine first so that you were gladdened in heart as it were in this moment of celebration and you were maybe more forgiving of the lesser quality of wine because you were already in a state of joy and happiness. You are already in a state of receiving gladness, right?" In God's providence, this is when the wine ran out, after they had celebrated. Now, a Jewish wedding typically would last um, anywhere from five days to a week, and we don't know where they're at in this particular time frame. We're not given that information, so we shouldn't speculate. But the wine runs out, and so the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus, this is Mary and. It's important that it says the mother of Jesus and at this point we see Jesus' response to her and we kind of, you know, if we knee-jerk react and we don't understand the dynamics of what's going on could be like a little, uh, Jesus, what are you doing here? He does that a lot. Here he says, or pardon me, she says to him they have no wine and Jesus says, woman, what has that to do with me? Now, I from time to time, try to get away with calling my mom woman. (laughs) It sometimes, you know, goes over like a lead balloon, and sometimes it's a funny joke and people laugh about it. But neither one of those things are what's happening here. Jesus is saying, why are you involving me in this? Now we don't know, I have seen so much speculation. Some said, well, the reason this happened is because Mary would have been in charge of the wine and now she was saving face and trying to not be embarrassed about the situation. We don't have that here. We don't know exactly why this happened. We don't know how the relation is to this wedding. We don't have the names of the bride and the bridegroom because frankly, we don't need them. The point of the passage is not the wedding. Sorry, all bride and bridegrooms and all the weddings I've ever been to. Um, the point of your wedding was certainly your joining together before the Lord and before family and friends through <coughs> the exchanging of vows. Not so here. The point of this wedding ultimately is in messianic fulfillment. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus, at this point, now having been baptized, tempted in the wilderness, declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is doing what he said he was going to do back in Luke chapter 3 when he said, I must be about my father's business. And he was 12 then. Now he was still obedient to his parents at that point, and I don't see this as him being disobedient. But there's a change that has taken place. No longer... Is she simply his mother? Now he has become her Messiah. And he is fulfilling his messianic role and is to be about the will of his father, not the will of his mother. So this is why he says, what does this have to do with me? I am on my messianic mission now. I am no longer a son just simply under your roof. Now the mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She, doesn't ex- she expects something's going to happen. He doesn't say, we don't have anything written down here about what he said he was going to do in advance, but she clearly has some expectation of his provision. It's interesting that th- this is an allusion back to Joseph in um, Genesis chapter 41, when um, Joseph interprets the dream, and Pharaoh says, Whatever he tells you to do to the rest of his kingdom, do it. And Joseph sets up, of course, all those silos and granary storage areas and all that kind of thing. Um, Joseph was the great provider there in the Old Testament. And I don't know if this is inspired for us to think back along those lines. I think it's certainly interesting because this whole text is about provision in a place of um, depletion. And that's exactly what happened in Egypt there at the times of Joseph. But needless to say, verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So, Jewish rites of purification, you know, they would come in and they'd wash their hands and then they'd let their water drip down their elbows, and then they would kind of do one of these things to dry them off, and they would go in, and it would be part of their purification rites. Six stone water jars is a lot. That probably means there was a lot of people who were coming to this feast. So Jesus takes these stone water jars, and the... And the reason why I point this out, Jewish rites of purification, is that's, I think, the reason why we're being keyed into the fact here that Jesus fulfills what Judaism could not at that particular point. And so he takes these water pots that were for these purification rites, and he says to the servants, fill these jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. I imagine in my own mind and as I read the Bible existentially, right, trying to put myself in the nitty and gritty of the text, that they were filling them up and Jesus is just like, more, 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 kind of along the lines of Elijah and the prophets of, you know, uh, of Baal there on Mount Carmel where he says, you know, keep soaking that thing with water, that altar, soak it, you know, build a trough around it, just let the water flow from it and then fire comes down from the sky. That's what I pictured. Just water coming out of the top. They're completely filled all the way up. And now he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, stop right there for just a second. We don't know exactly when the water was changed to wine that again reading the commentaries there's all manner of speculation that when they pulled the water out it was actually still water but as they were walking it turned to wine or as dude picked it up and drank it it turned to wine in his gullet or it was actually the whole pots that turned into wine we're not told and you know what i don't think we need to be told it doesn't matter when it took place it matters that it took place following me So let's not speculate where there isn't speculation. I mean, it's fun to get yourself into the text and kind of experience it. But when we try to make points that there aren't points being made in scripture, that's what we wanna be careful of avoiding. So the master of the feast, he tasted the water that had become wine and he didn't know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This declaration of the master of the feast saying, this is the good wine that is being served is everything we need in order to hear the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages. Frankly, anybody who had messianic expectations and had read this in the days of Jesus or had heard this story, this would have been a no-brainer to them. This is is the kind and caliber of miracle that the reason it's performed first is because it ought to be crystal clear. The reason it's obscure for us today is one, our distance from the text and our cultural differences that exist in our day and age. And two, decades, maybe even a century and a half of bad teaching on this text. Because people are so caught up with, well, don't use this text as a justification to drink wine. Well, we're not to be drunk with wine. That's crystal clear. But there are lots of good things that have been given to us by the Lord that can be abused. Money is a great example. Money is a good thing in and of itself. We have lots of passages about money in Scripture and how to use it wisely and how to use it unwisely. We have instruction in the New Testament that pastors are supposed to give to those who are wealthy and urge them seriously, don't abuse your wealth. And those who are poor in how to live in a manner so that they don't abuse their own poverty, but instead be wise with the things they do have. Money is something that can be abused in and of itself. It is not an evil thing. And wine is the same thing. Strong drink is the same thing. In fact, look at Deuteronomy chapter 14 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 14. This is a surprising passage for many people. Number one, because we're not in Deuteronomy all the time. But Deuteronomy chapter 14 is giving instructions about your celebration, your tithes, your going and um, sacrificing, your feast days, It all has to do with worshiping God, okay? So this is in the context of worshiping God. Deuteronomy chapter 14, let's begin in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat of the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of the herd of your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So let me set the stage for you here. Here's what's happening. When they come into the land, right, Deuteronomy is before Israel comes in and conquers the nation of Israel, okay, Joshua is going to do that once Moses dies. This is written just before that. It's what they're to take into the land, and the law is there to follow once they get in there. So it says God is going to set up a place for himself. And when he does that, here's what you're to do. Take from your wine, take from your grain, and take from your firstborn, and go to the place where the Lord God has established Sacrifice that animal and eat of your grain and drink of your wine. Basically, you are rejoicing in the providence that God has given you in giving you this land. Okay? And you going to where God has set up his temple tabernacle at this time. His your going there is teaching you to honor, to reverence, to worship God. You're doing this as an act of worship. But verse 24, if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry your tithe. Can I just stop a second here? This would never have struck me like this before, this whole quarantine thing. But this is certainly an aspect of that, isn't it? We, it is just too much for some people to come and to worship like this. And so the Lord gives provision even here in this time and day. If you can't come down and worship, here's how you are to worship rightly. So, you know, as we've been talking about what to do here, you know, Joel has had this wonderful idea of doing this the way we're doing here. And so we're grateful that we can worship even in a time where we can't all get together, kind of like this passage here. But that's a side point. Let's move on. If you are not able to carry the tithe, then the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there. Then you shall turn it to money, the grain, the animal, whatever it is, you turn that to money. Then bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that your Lord God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, you shall eat it there before the Lord your God, and rejoice you and your whole household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within the towns, for he has no portion or inheritance With you. So you hear that there. What he commands you to do in this time of rejoicing is to take whatever it was you were going to bring, sell it, take the money, and buy whatever your heart desires in order to celebrate. And he includes in that list wine and strong drink. He intends for you to celebrate and to rejoice. Wine, although fermentation, we might look back and say, well, it's because of the fall. It's because, you know, it's breaking down and this kind of thing. Well, the Lord certainly understood that. Didn't happen all of a sudden. He's like, oh, I've got to redeem this somehow, some way along the line. No, it has always been throughout history a symbol of celebration and joy that, yes, can be abused, but however we are to use it and use it wisely and rightly, and I still believe we're to use it even in the context of our worship. We have wine here that we're going to partake of communion, not grape juice. And we believe that's because this is what the Lord has instituted and what the Lord has consecrated, and that we don't have the ability, the wisdom to be able to say, well, we know better now. I think the Lord knew exactly what he was doing in that day and age. And if he'd intended communion or celebration to be in any other ways and means, we could certainly have clear instruction of it. So the whole point of this text is not a abstinence text. It's not a... Uh, what Tito? This the whole point of it is, is that Jesus Christ fulfilled the messianic expectation of the joy and the celebration that will come when He arrives to fulfill His ministry. And wine was one of the great and understood biblical symbols of that. I mean, we have huge passages here: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos. These aren't like. Again, hidden in a corner. This is Obadiah, right? Nahum, you know, Habakkuk. I mean, those are good passages, but these are big books still. These are, all of them is vital, but this is not in a corner. The whole messianic anticipation of Jesus coming. So the first sign he did in Cana of Galilee manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Those are huge phrases as we close. Those are huge comments to make. That him turning water into wine manifested his glory. And some will say, well, his glory was manifested in that he changed one elemental object into a completely different compound. Okay, but if that's all it is, he could have done that with anything. The the point of him doing it here, you see, has this massive messianic hope involved in it. And therefore, his glory is manifested not in the fact Jesus can change an element, you know, one compound into another just by his sheer word. That's great. And don't get me wrong, I'm not minimizing that he can do that. But the point is so much greater than that. The point is is that he can do that because he's the Messiah, Because he's God, because he is the one who has come to provide all the satisfaction that Judaism could not provide. And in doing this, notice what happens. His disciples believed in him. They'd already heard messages that he was going to say. Remember last week, we saw Nathaniel sitting under the tree and Jesus said to him, you're amazed that I said I saw you sitting under the tree? Wait till you see what's coming up, buddy. And this is one of the first things that happened, this amazing miracle that they certainly would have understood as messianic. And therefore, his disciples believed in him. They believed him because of the words that were spoken about him. They believed him because of the words he was saying out of himself. And they believed in him because of the sign's sake. We're gonna see as we go through the book of the uh, the John, as we go through the book of John, that there is this threefold witnessing that's going to happen. Jesus is going to talk extensively about it in John chapter five. But here we see the beautiful manifestation of Jesus being the Messiah on display for his very first miracle that he performs. And we shouldn't be at all surprised We shouldn't be at all taken back. We shouldn't blush as we read this text. We should embrace it and be so thankful that the Lord is not only the great Messiah who changes water into wine, but he is the great Messiah who brings joy, who brings satisfaction, who brings celebration when no other thing possibly can. Nothing in this world, no other person, no other being, no other work, nothing but the name of Jesus Christ is going to be that which satisfies our souls, now or ever. Praise God. Father, we love you and we thank you for this great and glorious truth that we find here in this text. That you have sent your son to be this great and glorious fulfillment of all of these messianic promises and anticipations that people had. And that we shouldn't be surprised at all, Lord, that you are the great fulfillment of these things. We're not, Lord, and we look at this text and I thank you, Lord, for the clear understanding of it. I pray that as we think through these things the rest of this week, that our hearts would be stirred with this joy, with this celebration, with the satisfaction that you do provide everything that our hearts long for, that nothing else in this world, nothing else that's promised to us could ever provide. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.